risk can be viewed so differently by two different people. And so let's, let's look at employment. So one view could be, how could you ever go out there and, and start your own business? Imagine the risk of not having a steady income from a good employer and not knowing what's going to come around the corner and, you know, betting everything on in, in this business venture. That's the riskiest thing that I could imagine in my life. That's one view of it. Now take this view, exact same situation. The riskiest thing that I could do is to have a job. Welcome to the Strive for More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of the Strive Accelerator. We are a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of. And we figured out that a community of like-minded people is the only way to ensure we flourish in business, in our relationships, and in our lives. This podcast is dedicated to uncovering the stories of the communities around successful people that got them to where they are, and in the process, we'll break down barriers for you to succeed too. Today, I'm really fortunate to be joined by Iggy Domagolski. He is the CEO of Tundra Process Solutions, a Western Canadian distributor and manufacturer of innovative process technologies. Tundra has been named one of Canada's best managed companies and an imagined company for outstanding community support. And prior to Tundra, Iggy started his career in finance at Investors Group and Richardson GMP in Winnipeg. He later became the president of Western Industrial, which is an air compressor distributor in Vancouver. Iggy is an avid community fundraiser and has served on the boards of the Learning Disabilities Association, the International Society of Automation, and the Kids Cancer Care Foundation. Iggy holds a Bachelor of Commerce degree from the Asper School of Business, where there is an award in his name that was created by his fellow students and has been given away annually since 2004. He's also been named one of Canada's top 40 under 40. He currently lives in Calgary with his wife and twin daughters, and in his spare time, he enjoys running, reading, and music. Iggy, thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure, Jared. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, let's jump into it. Um, I want to start at your past and um, in kind of learning about you and um, doing more research on you as a person and Tundra as a company. I was really impressed by your commitment to culture, your commitment to entrepreneurship, your commitment to running a, a an outstanding company. And so I'm interested to go back to your past. And I know that you started a company, a marketing company when you were 16 years old. What was that? You know, it was a, my, my first one was actually when I was 12, if you can believe it, but it was, a, <laughs> it was, it was really small. And so to, to give you an idea, I mean, I'm, I'm 40 now. So age 12 was quite a ways, quite a time ago. And there was some, something called a bulletin board service or a BBS, which uh, which you might be a little too young to remember, Jared. But it was it was like the early startings of the internet, and um, except instead of going online into the online world, you could connect to one other computer, which would be in somebody's house. And the way that you would do that is you had your little modem, and you would dial over to them, and then your two computers would talk. And uh, and I I bought this CD of uh, and, and CD-ROMs at the time were brand new. And I bought this when I was 12, the CD 
of software on it and um and 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 it had the rights that you could resell it if you wanted to and i thought well i could probably do that and so that that was essentially the business so i would i was reselling these these really simple pieces of software to other people who would dial into my computer and then if they liked what they saw then they could mail me a check <laughs> I didn't have a bank account, so I had to give the checks to my parents so that they could deposit them. So that did they the keep point. them or did they give them to you? They they gave me the cash. So that was uh how many how many checks did you get? Not too I mean it was small, right? I was twelve years old. It was a small little business. <laughs> but you know, it was I mean it, that was that was my first real taste of entrepreneurship. And my parents were entrepreneurs too. They uh they we we came from Poland. I was born in Poland and in Poland, uh, they had a bunch of businesses. And then when we moved to Canada, we owned retail stores that sold crafts and pottery and trinkets and things like that um, in kind of a, a trendy area of Winnipeg called Osborne Village. And so I, so that was always kind of in our family's blood, I guess. And my grandpa was an entrepreneur and he owned a photography kind of company. So that was, it was always in our blood and that, that's what we grew up with. And so I liked business. I always, I always thought since I was a little kid, really since I was 12, that one day I would like to run businesses. And, uh, and I've been fortunate that I've been able to pursue that dream. What kind of things did you learn from that first foray into business as a 12-year-old? Um, a lesson that still sticks with me today and that I, that I tell people who are thinking about going into business, it is really, really hard to convince people to give you money. It's that's one of the hardest things that you can do. I mean, you can, you can convince people to do something for you or to be nice to you or to give you advice, but to convince people to write you a check is, is something that's pretty hard, even for an item of value, especially when you're new because you don't have that trust. You're just a guy or gal that's saying, hey, I've got this thing. Do you want to buy it? Give me some money and I promise to give it to you. And it's all based on trust. So I, I, I think the, the lessons were that it is hard to get people to give you money. And if, you, and if you're able to figure out a formula that does that, then you're onto something and you actually have a, an economic model that will work. And, and then just the value of hard work. Like it, was, it was hard to convince people to, to give you money and it's hard to set up all the back end. and anyone that's ever designed a website or done, done anything. It's, it's just a lot of work. And, um, and, and so often you see entrepreneurs or business people having success and you think, oh, that must be nice. And, but you didn't, you didn't see that overnight success, which was actually 15 years in the making of just blood, sweat, and tears that finally has turned into something nice. And you're only just tuning in now. So it's, it really taught that, that hard work and the, the appreciation for convincing a customer or an investor to, to give you some money. You mentioned Iggy, that your parents were business owners and entrepreneurs, and that there was kind of this generational component to your interest in business. And so I'd be Curious to know what kind of lessons did you learn from your parents or, or what inspiration did you get from them? They were, uh, my parents are really my heroes. Um, we, we were living in Poland and I, I was a little kid when we left. I was three years old. So I, I remember tiny little snippets of it. Um, but uh, the country was becoming unsafe for us. So we had to, we had to leave. And it was a, it was a, a near communist country, socialist, but near communist at the time. And you couldn't just leave. That's not a thing that you can do. You don't just leave a communist country. 
So we had to, my parents had to say that they were going on vacation and pack up some suitcases as if they were going on vacation and then just never come back. And uh, we ended up in a refugee camp in Austria for a year. And then one day the guys came by, whoever those guys were, and said, hey, there's a plane going to Canada. And that's after we were there for a year. I said, do you want to go? And my parents said, yeah, that's, that's where we've been trying to get to. And they said, well, where's it going to? And the guy said, Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so my parents pulled out a paper map and looked at it and said, awesome. It's right in the middle. Perfect. <laughs> and then, so we ended up in Winnipeg and that's, and that's how, and that's how I grew up there. But they, they, they left Poland to Austria where the, the area that they were in, it was German speaking. They, they had never spoken a word of any language other than Polish. And so I, and, and left with what essentially turned out to be no money because they were basically escaping the country. So I just, I, I compare that to myself and think, would I leave Canada, drop myself in the middle of Mandarin speaking China where not a single person speaks a lick of English with no money, with children, and see how I do. And uh, that answer for me is a big no. <laughs> I, would, I would not do that. Uh, and fortunately, I don't have to. I mean, I, I guess if I was forced into it, you'd figure it out like anybody would. But um, but I don't have to. And, and they chose to do that. And uh, and they really, they did it for me and then for my sister, who was later born in Canada, so that we would have a better life. And, you know, for, for that reason, you know, they just they just took this uncomprehensible risk that that we just i don't even understand it and i was part of it but um like what a what a crazy risk to take and and immigrants do that every day um and so i so i, I really have a such a, a fondness for that for that what they did and then and then all the other things that they did you know taking a risk to start a business that's nothing <laughs> that's not a risk at all you know that's that's so we'll go bankrupt so we'll have no money again and it'll be fine um so so I think I think it taught me just a lot about really about risk and uh, and what you can lose and if you do lose it maybe it's really not that bad. Did you ever feel pressure as a child from immigrant parents to make something of yourself because your parents had sacrificed so much in some way for a better life for you? Um, that's a good question. My my parents never really put that kind of pressure on me. And, I, and I'm thankful for that, right? Like they didn't make me feel not once in my entire life that I ever feel, you know, kind of guilty because, you know, like they, because they left something for me. Uh, like we would, we, we would talk about that, that that is what happened because it's, it's a fact, but um, they, I, I was never, ever made to feel like I owed them something or that I should, you know, I should be thanking my lucky stars that they did this. Um, but, but I did put that pressure on myself that I wanted to do something really good because I was given the opportunity to, to do something good. And, uh, I think there was always a, there was always an expectation that I would go to university. I think that that is, um, that that's a common, not a pressure. It's just, kind of the way that it is. Both of my parents went to university and they got master's degrees and as did all of their family, which was kind of the way in communist socialist countries. Everyone just went to school because it was all free and that's what everybody did. 
Um, so, so to not go to university would have been a really weird thing in my family and in many immigrant families. So there was not a pressure, but just an expectation that, yeah, once you're, once you're done high school, of course you go into university. What do you want to do? Do you want to engineering, medicine, management? You, you pick, but that's what's happening. And uh, so that, that was really the only kind of loose pressure, but I never really felt it as a, a, a real pressure. And that's not a bad segue into your university career because you went on to do uh, business um, at university and kind of an interesting topic of conversation that came up is that you actually have an award named after you at the business school. And I think it's one of the only major awards or sorry, only awards at a major Canadian university that isn't uh, posthum- posthumous. Yeah, I'm not dead. So that's you're neat. not dead. I can't pronounce it, but you're not dead. <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed university. I th- university people talk about those being the good old days. And I love these days. And, you know, I, I have a family now and life is good. And I love it. I love living in Calgary and I like what I do and all those things. But university, that's in college for people. That's a really special time. And I really, really tried to make the most out of it. I, I went, I, I did well in school and I went to the classes most of the time and you know, I, <laughs> I did all those things. Um, but I, I thought that well, I, I received the advice early on when I was talking to some people right as I was getting in and they said, just get involved. Like, don't just go to class, get involved and do other stuff. And that other stuff can be anything. There's a hundred different clubs on campus, whether it's sports, academics, politics, whatever it is, but do something just to, to round out your university experience. And I really took that to heart. And I, uh, I got involved once I was in the business school. Uh, it's now called the Asper School of Business uh, at the University of Manitoba. And uh, I, I got involved in the student government there, which was less about politics and more about um, event organization, managing teams for community events and that kind of thing. There, there was there were elections involved, which which you had to do. Uh, but but after that was done, kind of the, the politicking was over, uh, which was nice. So I, so I learned that, that I don't like elections, but, uh, <laughs> but I was a. Uh, you know, I wanted to do the stuff that came after the election. So I kind of just bit the bullet, did the election thing, was fortunate to win and, and help every year kind of held a different role there. Um, so I was uh, kind of the social director one year, then I was uh, the vice president academic one year. And then in my exiting year, I was uh, the president of what's called the Commerce Students Association. And, and you know, it's really like a little company, right? Like we had, we had a budget of no one was paid, but you, you know, you put on events and things and we had a budget of half a million dollars, which was, that's a lot of money for a little student association. And we really made a lot of impact in the community and for the students. And we started some great events and we, a lot of the things that we started are still, you know, operational there to this day, almost 20 years later, which is really great to see. Wow. And um, yeah. And so, so I, I graduated and then for whatever reason, a, a group of the people that I was in uh, in that program with and was on the student council with, uh, they they thought that I was worthy of an of an award, which I didn't fully agree with. But they said we want to do this for you, and I said, well, don't do it for me. And but they said, no, we want to do it. And and then basically at that point, I was just kind of asked to leave the process because I'm supposed <laughs> to be in that process if it's for you. It's weird. And, uh, and then what they actually did is they, they actually held a student referendum and it's not a small school, like the school has, the, the university is big, but the actual faculty is about 1500 students. And so they held this referendum 
if people thought it would be appropriate to take money off of their own tuition every year and to put it into this award fund, which it's weird to say, but it's it's the Iggy Domagalski Award for Student Leadership. And, uh, and yeah, the students voted in a majority yes that they wanted to do that. And so that was, I think, I, and I was young, at, I, was like, I was 23 years old at the time, I think. So it was a super weird experience. I think it would be a weird experience at any time in your life, but especially when you're 23. And so, so that award's been created. It's been given out, I guess now 16, 17 times to different students. And, the, and the, the, I really like the purpose of the award and it wasn't my idea for, for how it would roll out, but I'm, I'm really, in the end, I was thrilled to, to, to associate my name with something like this. It's, it's given out to the student every year who uh, makes the makes the most meaningful contribution to their student group that they're involved with. And then a quarter of the money goes to the student and then three quarters of the money actually goes to the student group so that they can continue doing the great work that was started by that person the previous year. So it's a really neat award. And I was, uh, I was very honored and humbled to be a part of that. So that's, that's pretty cool. What did that feel like when you first heard about it? Were you, like dumbfounded? Were you blown away? Were you um, confused? Because that seems like such a tremendous honor and really one of the few, like I mentioned, one of really the only award like that in the country. Uh, yeah, so all of those emotions wrapped up times 10, I think. <laughs> have you and, kept in contact with those people that have won the award since uh, it's been given out? I've, I've, I've you know, I haven't met all of them. Uh, it's it's given away at the annual graduation, and I no longer live in Winnipeg. And I'm, I was kind of disassociated from the award at the beginning because that, apparently that's the way it's done. I don't know anything about how it works, but I was told that that's how it's done, and uh, and it's just given out at the graduation every year. So I've met a couple of the students, um, but I've, but I've I've kept in touch with uh, the the group that that really got it started in the first place. And some of those folks are my best friends to, to this day. Uh, the the ringleader on that was a guy by the name of uh, Ramel Dalla, who's one of my best friends still. So he's a he's a top financial advisor in Winnipeg and and my money manager also. Um, so so we're we're still great pals and we we keep in touch a lot. That's a really neat story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to talk about that transition point that you mentioned from from your business school into the world of finance. And so you transitioned into the world of finance and I'd be interested to know, like earlier on, you mentioned you always knew you were going to get into business, but what drew you to finance? Why'd you start out there? That's a good question. I mean, there's, there's so many things you can do in school and I, I get, I was always reasonably good at numbers and I, I always, I thought that I didn't want to ever be confused by numbers and I never wanted someone to be able to pull one over on me, you know, and confuse me with numbers. So I, so I, I always wanted to have a good understanding of that. And I think that's why I, I chose to, to, to really get a good grounding in finance and accounting. It is really the, the language of business and I, and I wanted to have a good understanding of that. So that, that was why I originally started it and I liked it. It was, it was interesting. So I, so I kept with it. And uh, the summer before I graduated, 
there's a company called Investors Group, or I, I think they're called IG now. It's a, it's a monster company, thousands of employees across the country. They, they manage investments for well over a million Canadians. Really cool company. And they were starting this program they call it their management development program kind of a, a rotational program where they would hire in some high potential youngsters who would then be rotated through a bunch of different departments so that, and they get to work on meaningful projects in those departments and then you know have a really good grounding of the business so that uh, if they were fortunate to move up in the future that you know they would they would understand a little bit of marketing and a little bit of training and a little bit of sales and a little bit of finance and a little bit of all, all the areas and so this was the first year that that program was launched. And the reason that they launched it is because uh, a, a lot of grads tend to leave Winnipeg. Um, mm -hmm. Winnipeg's a, a great city to grow up in, but uh, especially a lot of finance grads, they leave for Toronto, New York, Calgary, Vancouver, Boston, LA, anywhere really. A, a, lot, of, a lot of people just, just, they want to leave Winnipeg for whatever reason. And a lot of uh, big investment banks and other companies come in and recruit uh, the summer before for students and then and then kind of yank the they probably yank 50 percent of the top grads out, out of there and uh, investors group strong company based in winnipeg was thinking well geez well how do we how do we keep some of those people and so they came up with this program and it was the first year that they were doing it there were two positions and i was fortunate to get hired for one of those positions and uh, and, and then stayed there for quite a few years really enjoyed it got to got to learn a, a a ton of things and worked in a, with a ton of great people and among them was uh one of the top guys who actually he's the one that, that did the, the interview to hire me and me and him really kicked it off and his name's mike miller and uh and we've been actually working together ever since so we've been uh working together for 19 years so he was my uh my first real boss and we're still partners to this day and he's the chairman of our company and i report to him still so we've had a We've had a pretty good run here coming up on 20 years. And Mike was actually the guy that took you, not took you over, but approached you originally with that idea to, to move over to Tundra. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, at, at the time we didn't even know what Tundra was when we wanted to go on this journey. So um, we, I worked at investors group for a number of years and then uh, Mike went over to start a company called Richardson Partners Financial, which is a, a big finance, uh, similar company to Investors Group, but a lot smaller and more niche and focused on high net worth clients. And uh, so he was the CEO of that company and he brought me over to do a bunch of work in their finance and IT group uh, early on in my career. And then he, he actually left that company uh, because he wanted to go out west and buy companies and he took a little bit of time off. So I was still working full time at Richardson's and uh, and Mike was working at home basically researching what his next move would be and then he contacted me and said hey so this is what I want to do I want to go buy these companies do you, what do you think do you want to do you want to come do this with me and previously when he asked me to do that we went over to Richardson company and we you know, we hired like 100 people right away and built this big thing and it was great and, and this time I said well Okay, awesome. You know, last time there was this big group of people. Who's who's on the list now? What's going on? And he said, "Just me and you." <laughs> <laughs> cool. So that was a so that was interesting. But I but I I thought it's something that I was really that, that I really wanted to do, and I thought it was a good time to take that step. So I would work my regular full time job every day, and then two or three nights a week I would drive to his house, 
which was about half hour, 45 minutes away from mine. Uh, we'd have a drink and then we'd start, you know, learning, analyzing companies, reading over financials, talking about which ones we'd be interested in. And geez, we must have looked at over 300 companies before we found a few that we were really, really interested in. And uh, there was a there was a granite company in the Okanagan. Uh, there was and uh, and an air compressor company in Vancouver. Those were the two that we narrowed it down to. So we flew out there and we drew, drove to both of them, checked them both out, and and we decided that the one that we wanted to start with was the air compressor one in in Vancouver. And so we that was early 2006, and we we pulled the trigger on that one, and then just kind of kept going. How did things go for you during 2008 global financial crisis? Like I can imagine getting into business in 2006 would have been an exciting time, but I also contrast that with the really significant global recession that occurred just two years later. Like, did you feel like you'd had learned enough by that point to pull through it or, or was that a really kind of a, a turning point in your leadership management style, et cetera? I, uh, that's, that's a good question too. So, so personally in my, in my like full working career, I've been through, I would say three major downturns. There was, there was a 08, 09 financial crisis there. Um, there was kind of a blip in 2012, but that one doesn't, that one doesn't really count. Uh, in 2014 through 2016, there was that big downturn, and which was sort of starting to just get better. And now there's this one. So this is kind of the third really major one that I've been through. And every time I learn different lessons and hard lessons, and um, so does our whole management team. And I, I think we're, you know, we're a much stronger team because of it now. And we were, we were actually just having a, a day long meeting today on Zoom. And I was just commenting on how far less panicky we are uh, you know, we used to be really panicky when things were going bad and now that we've seen it a few times we know how it plays out and we know what we have to do so we're just we're a lot more calm and which, which is a really nice it's a really nice place to be uh, but going back to 0809 you know I, I i don't know i'd never really managed through a crisis before so so we just we just kind of kept going. We we were panicky, but at the same time, we had some great opportunities. So I remember at the time, our company was about 30 people. And we had an opportunity to take on a new product line that we knew nothing about. But it would require buying a bunch of inventory and hiring a dozen people. So almost increasing our headcount by 50% in this massive financial crisis. And I remember I remember talking to our banks and saying, Hey, so, you know, it's pretty bleak out there, but we're hoping you'll lend us <laughs> more money and, uh, and that we can, you know, grow our company during this challenging time. Here's our business plan to do it. We think it's a good idea. What do you think? And, and, you know, now I look back, not, I thought shockingly at the, at the time they said, yes. And I thought I was shocked by that, but looking back now, you know, I'm, I'm not shocked, you know, bankers are smart and, and they, they had been through many cycles and they understand that, you know, as, as long as you're going to make it through this thing, then now is the right time to, uh, to really tackle the big opportunities that you can. So that was, 
for, for us, that was taking on a product line called Toshiba. Toshiba is a big international name. You know, they make microwaves and TVs. They also make giant industrial motors and variable frequency drives, which are pieces of equipment to control motors. And uh, so those are, that was, that, was, that was a great move for us. And that's turned into one of our most successful business lines ever. And then uh, in this most recent crisis between kind of around 15, 16, the same thing happened. There was a, you know, things were bad, revenues were way down, crisis, layoffs, terrible. And we went to our bank again and said, hey, you know, remember last time? Well, kind of the same thing. <laughs> this time we want to take on two new product lines, really big ones. They're going to take a lot of money and a lot of effort. What do you think? And, and the same thing happened. They said, yeah, we'll support you through this. Where's the plan? We had a good plan and, um, and we did it. And again, and, and, and we also opened up a, a new branch in an area that we had no experience in and invested a bunch of money in that. And, and all three of those things, uh, one was taking on a product line called Ferris, huge success. Another one taken on a product line called MSA, which is uh, safety equipment that detects fires and poisonous gases huge success, and then opening up uh, an office in Grand Prairie, which has been ultra successful as well. So those were those were the opportunities that presented themselves then. And this time around, uh, we're, we're trying to be a lot less panicky and a lot more looking at opportunities. And it was nice, you know, today all day we were talking about what are the opportunities that are coming out of this? What do we need to research? We already have a bunch coming at us that we have to say no to because we're, you know, they're just, they're not quite perfect enough. And, but I know that there will be some really, really perfect opportunities that come at us out of this. So, so I'm hoping that when we come out of this one, that once again, we'll come up even stronger and better than, than we were before. Not getting into specifics, but generally, what would you say are going to be those opportunities that are coming out of this crisis pandemic? And, and maybe not in the next two months, but over this next year period where this pandemic may persist and, and in the post pandemic world. What are the, some of those opportunities that you see? I, uh, there, there's, a, there's a few interesting ones. If like talking at a really, really high level, um, working from home is going to be a big thing. It, uh, people have figured out that you can do it quite efficiently. I used to hate working from home. I, I would set up, you know, my little laptop on my kitchen table and kids were always coming by focused, <laughs> and it was it was terrible i hated it so i just stopped doing it five years ago and anytime i needed to do work on a weekend or an evening i would just either stay at the office or go to the office and uh, obviously we we're all forced to do it now and i've now that i actually I, I set up a good setup with my monitors and a good desk and everything and um kind of set some boundaries with the kiddos so that they know it's like hey i'm a, you know i'm recording something here so you can't come in for a while okay no problem and uh, and I love it, and I think it's great. And 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 I've been asking our people, you know, what do you think? And and I'm getting the same answer. And when I ask them, you know, would you would you give up having your own desk and share a desk in exchange for being able to work at home part time? And nearly every single person is saying yes. So so I foresee a world where a large portion of every company will be working from home a couple days a week. So. If that's, if that's the case, some big energy changes are coming. And whether you work in energy or oil and gas, this, this will have an effect on everyone. So with, with that major of a change, there is going to be less people driving to work and more people staying at home. 
And if there's more people staying at home, that means homes that might not normally be heated during the day are gonna be heated. And electricity that wasn't being used during the day in, in your home is now going to be used. And that's going to create a huge demand for natural gas, which powers the electricity grid and powers heating our homes. Uh, and, then, and then there's a whole bunch of other reasons why I think natural gas is um, going to be uh, having a, a much larger demand, including this really big LNG infrastructure that's being built in America. Electric cars are coming on strong, which need to be powered in the home by electricity, which is generated by natural gas. There's a big movement to get away from coal, and most of that is changing to natural gas power plants. So there's, there's this big demand building for, uh, for that fossil fuel. And uh, there will there, be, be renewables too, and there'll be a lot of solar and, uh, and wind, and both of those require um, natural gases backup as well. So, so I think generally things around the natural gas supply chain will, will have a really positive outlook. So we're looking at that. And I think that's really, really great news for Alberta. Um, Alberta was always a strong gas province and you know, we've moved a lot towards the oil sands. And, and if we move back to gas, I think that will be great because we're, we already have all the infrastructure and we're, we're very strong in that. So I think that's a, I just think it's a great thing for Albertans and Canadians in general, because it's, because we're already positioned for that. So there'll be, you know, opportunities around natural, natural gas. Uh, for us in particular, I think there'll be opportunities around great product lines. I think that there will be opportunities to expand our geographic footprint, which we're already looking at. So we want to be closer to our customers and the geographies that they operate in. Uh, so probably setting up a couple new branches closer to our clients. Those will be some great opportunities. And, uh, and then there will be just be some great people on the market. So when we're, when we're ready to start hiring again, I think the, there will be some exceptional talent out there that uh, we will be happy to hire. I want to turn to your relationship with Mike Miller. Um, and he seems to me to be somebody that was kind of a formative relationship in that early period of your career. And I think those of us starting out in business are, we always hear about networking and we hear about the importance of building relationships. But I'd be interested to know in your experience, how did you, how did like you, I know you and Mike met during the interview, but how did you go about noticing him as somebody that you wanted to get closer to? And then how did you build that relationship going forward besides drinking? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a good scotch. Sometimes that's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, yeah. Let's just talk scotch. <laughs> oh, we can spend the rest of the hour doing it, that. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously there were, there was, there was more than that. I mean, he was just a, and still is, you know, a great businessman that you can, you can kind of tell when you meet someone, you spend some time with them, whether your values and your approach to life are similar. And, and I felt that we had that. And I, I, I just liked his approach, right? He's a, he's a real family man. Uh, he's the kind of a word, your word is your absolute bond. Once the, once the hands are shaken, the deal is done. He's, he's that kind of a person. Mm -hmm. And that really appealed to me. And, uh, and you know, I thought that's how I live my life. That's how I want to continue living my life. So I want to be around people like that. And just, just the timing seemed to be right too. And we got along. I mean, that's, uh, that, that was ultimately the thing that we really, really got along. And as we got to know each other, I think that the reason that he asked me to join him in business is because he saw that we 
um, while we were had similar beliefs, we had we had quite different skill sets, and uh, and and that we would be very complementary. So even even though I was younger, I still, you know, I brought a meaningful perspective to the table that he didn't always have, and and of course he had a lot of perspective that I didn't have just because of his uh, his skills and his years of experience. What do you think you brought to the table at that early juncture? Uh, I would say then and still to, to this day, um, Mike is, he's been more of the gas pedal and, uh, and, and I've, I've been the, the more analytical one, although, although still usually pretty heavy on the gas, but not, not full throttle on the gas, if, if that makes sense. Uh, so he was always like, kind of, you know, let's, let's try 10 things and if three work out, that's great. Uh, and I, I, I was, I was more on that. Well, you know, maybe, maybe let's try four of them and just have a higher probability of more of them working out. I'm okay with failure and I don't need all of them to work out, but let's, let's not, let's not do the shotgun approach here. Let's try to be a little bit more laser focused and not chase all the shiny bumpers. And so I think I've, I've really brought the, the focus to our relationship and he's brought possibilities to the relationship, um, along with, along with, a you know, a thousand other things, but that's, uh, at a high level, that's our, our yin and yang. Can you speak about that approach that you take to assessing companies and to increasing that probability from three out of 10, for example, to four out of 10? What does that look like for you? Okay, and that's a good question. And I think we should start first with why buy a business? And mo- most most young entrepreneurs that I talk to, they're they're very excited to do a startup, a startup business, which which are super exciting, right? You have you got this amazing idea, you want to take it to market, and I you know I, I remember some of the lessons that I mentioned earlier on from when I was a young kid. You know, it's it is so hard to convince people to give you money, no matter how cool your product or your idea is. It's hard to get somebody to buy something from you, a product or a service, and it's almost even harder to get investors to give you money. Um, but buying a business, your chances of success like just go up exponentially. I mean, if you're if you're doing a startup, I, I think the you know there's no real encyclopedia on these stats or any kind of a really great source. But generally, nine out of ten fail. That's kind of a high level rule. Uh, but if you buy a business, uh, nine out of ten succeed. And so so here's a here's kind of the the reason for that and, and and why it's a lot easier. So imagine that you want to go start a grocery store. Nope, not a bad idea. Boy, there's a lot of things you got to learn, especially if you don't know anything about grocery stores, the whole supply chain, when food goes bad, how to hire and fire cashiers and a store manager. What do you pay a deli manager? I don't know. <laughs> you just, you don't know anything. And, and you're, but you can, but for 500 bucks, you can go down to the court office and file your papers and off you go and you're running Jared's Corner grocery store. And most bankers are going to be oh God, I they're, they're basically betting on you, you know, and if they know you and they think you'll do a good job, they'll bet on you uh, or, or other investors, family and friends investors. But it's, it's just a kind of a luck of the draw. Uh, and it's and it's even worse if you just have an idea like a technology idea or a something idea, your chances of success go down even more. But what if you went to a banker or your parents or someone that you knew that has money 
and you said, hey, I've, I've got an idea. I want to buy the grocery store that's on the corner. It's been there for 10 years. The owner wants to retire. He said he's going to stay on for six months, and then I'll take over as general manager after he trains me. The store does a million dollars sales in years, and the profit is $200,000 a year, and here's the Here's the purchase price. What do you think? The lease is already good for another four years. All the key staff are in place. All the all the relationships with the vendors are in place and they have a steady customer base. Like that's a business that I would lend money to or invest in. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. You're, I mean, you're like, you really got to screw it up. Like you, you got to go in there <laughs> and you got to go in there and make some big errors to flush that grocery store into the toilet. And that's why buying a business is just so much better in my opinion. I mean, there's, there, there's that chance that if you start a business from scratch, that you can hit that massive unicorn home run where you make all this money, or, but chances are you're not going to. So, so if, if, you, if you want to give yourself a really good chance of building some success and some equity, figure out how to buy a business. And that's hard. To, it, it's, it's way easier to start a business than to buy a business. Buying a business is hard. You have to do your research. You got to know what you're doing. It really helps. If you're if you have someone on your team that's bought a bunch of businesses before, because there are a lot of potential uh, pitfalls and uh, and things that you can get stuck in, things that you can get confused on or even tricked on. But uh, if you if you if you got that, those helpers, or if you've read a lot about it, your chances of success are are really great. And so one book that I would uh, really highly recommend it's, it's available online. You can just Google it. It's called How to Buy a Good Business at a Great Price by Richard Parker. And uh, he's a guy out of Florida who wrote this book and I've read it cover to cover. And it's, it's basically a manual on how to buy a small to medium sized company. And so, so if you're serious about owning a business, read that book and follow it exactly. And you have a really, really good chance of being successful. Sometimes we just try and overcomplicate things, don't we? Like I think uh, a lot of us, like you're saying, we're trying to we're trying to build our own thing and there's a lot of people out there that have built something similar. And so maybe it's just easier to go talk to them and see if you can buy their business. Um, and, and for, for the listeners, I will link to that book as well in the show notes so that um, if you're interested, you can definitely check that out. So Iggy, thank you for that recommendation. Um, what have you learned about making bets over these years? Like some haven't paid off, I'm sure. And some haven't worked out. Is there things that you've learned in, in business that have applied to the rest of your life, for example? Uh, yeah, well, I like betting. I think it's fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I used to play a lot of poker, but I just don't have the time for it anymore. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. Uh, but, you know, you have to make bets. That's, that, that's what business is. Business is just a series of bets, and you make them every day. You make a... When you're hiring a person, you're making a bet that that person's going to work out and you're making a bet that they're going to bring more value to your company than the dollars that you're paying them. And if you're buying a company, that's a bigger bet. And if you're taking on a product line, that's kind of a medium sized bet. And if you're, you know, if you're doing something really big, then that's kind of the ultimate bet and you're putting your company on the line. And it's, it's all, it's all kind of the... It's all, it's all a big series of bets. And even in personal too, right? You're getting married, you're, you're taking a bet that this is a person that you're going to love and want to be with for a really long time. Having kids, that's a, that's a big bet. Buying a house, that's a bet that the markets are going to go up and that you're going to be happy living there. So there's, it's, a, it's all a series of bets. And uh, if, you, if you look at it that way, then you can just kind of quantify the risk and figure out what the worst 
um, you know, the worst case scenario is. And that's, you know, that's, I think, pretty important is, is really thinking about risk as you go out there and think about getting into business. And, you know, if, if I were to give myself advice, my, you know, my younger self some advice, it would be to take more risk younger. And, mm-hmm. and I, took, I took some risk when I was young, but I, I would argue not enough. And, and I, I think taking risk, especially when you're young, is great. And really, really like go through in graphic detail, write it down if you have to. What is the worst thing that could happen here? And, you know, let's, I'll use a normal, normal situation. Let, let's use you, Jared. You're, I think you're, you're, you're a perfect example of this. You have a, you have a good job working as one of our frontline medical workers right now, which is amazing. And thank you for doing what you do. That's fantastic. And uh, I think you probably earn a, a reasonable wage that allows you to pay your bills and have a little bit of fun. And you're thinking about buying a business or starting one. And, and, and maybe there's something holding you back and it could be risk. So what is the worst possible thing that can happen to you if you, if you did this? So you, you buy this business and you buy, you know, you buy Jared's grocery store and it's got five employees and you screw it up. You drive that thing into the ground and you go bankrupt and uh, your girlfriend uh, gets mad at you and she leaves you and the place that you're living in, you no longer have any money. So they kick you out. So that's a very unlikely scenario, but probably the worst one that, that could happen based on that choice to do that. And let's say all oh, that really did happen. You know, that's bad, but how bad is it really? You know, so, you, so you're bankrupt. So you can just go back to your well-paying medical job that you have now and keep, <laughs> and keep doing that and be exactly where you are today, maybe with a little bit less savings, but you're young. So tack on another two years to your working life. So that's, that's the worst case. That's the worst case. And then you'd, you know, you'd find someone else to love. And maybe if they left you right now, sorry if I'm bad mouthing your girlfriend here, but you know, <laughs> if she left because you lost your job, maybe she's not the right one anyway, which I'm sure she, right. I'm sure she's lovely and I'm sure she would stick with you no matter what and support you. But you know, if that happened, you know, you didn't, then you'd find somebody else. And, that, and that's the worst of the worst that could happen. And it's still not that bad, right? Like you're not you're not dying on the operating table. No, one, no one's lives are at risk. Even if those people who worked for your company, if they lost their jobs, someone else will buy that grocery store. They'll hire all those people and they'll have their jobs back in a month. So I, so I really think it's, it's important to think about what is the worst thing that can happen? Figure out what that is. Then figure out what, what, what's, what's, what's even a reasonably good thing that could happen. You know, a reasonably good thing is that you are mediocre at running a grocery business you make a little bit of money you get some good experience in three years you decide that you know the grocery business isn't for you so you sell it you make a tiny bit of money and you move on to your next venture that's a medium mediocre kind of outcome and then a great outcome is it turns out you're awesome at running grocery stores so you buy a bunch more and then 10 years from now you own 10 grocery stores you're making a ton of money you got some equity you're building leaders in your company and you're having a great life what do, what do you think holds us back from assessing risk properly or for making that jump uh, one is probably not thinking it through like actually that that whole example that we just did 
I think many people haven't even done that level of analysis on it. They just, they just think, oh my God, I, I can never imagine not having a job. And, 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 and there, there is a really key way in how you view risk too. Uh, risk can be viewed so differently by two different people. And so let's, let's look at employment. So one view could be, how could you ever go out there and, and start your own business? Imagine the risk of not having a steady income from a good employer and not knowing what's going to come around the corner and, you know, betting everything on in, in this business venture. That's the riskiest thing that I could imagine in my life. That's one view of it. Now take this view, exact same situation. The riskiest thing that I could do is to have a job. And the least risky thing I can do is to run my own business. If I have a job, I'm relying 100% on somebody else for my income. They have the ability to fire me at any time and I have no control over that. That is very risky. The least risky thing I can do is bet on myself and have, a, a, and have complete control over my outcome and if it's not working out, then I can just work harder and make it happen. And that's the least risky path. So same thing, but just two totally different views on risk. So I, I guess to answer your question, I think a lot of people don't think it through. And if they do think it through, maybe they get stuck in the, you know, in the first dialogue as opposed to looking at it in the, in the second way. Yeah, not seeing maybe the second order consequences of yes. the job. That's a, a great insight, Iggy. I'd be interested to know from your perspective, you mentioned that you would have done things differently at a younger age if you had taken on more risk. And so what would you have done differently? I, th I think I probably just would have made more aggressive bets through and, and And I really like how everything turned out. So I, you know, I love the people that I work with. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Uh, I love the city that I ended up in. I, I spent a bit of time in Vancouver, which is great, but I ended up in Calgary and I love living here. And I love my family and that's all worked out and friends. So I'm, I'm really happy with how everything is. So I wouldn't want to change the outcome, but I think I would have, I would have cranked up the risk. I would have tried things that, you know, maybe I wasn't as that comfortable with and just really tried to jump into the deep end a little bit quicker in everything that I did. So, but that, that's about it. I think I just would have just crank up the bets a little bit harder. I recently interviewed a guy named Will Gadd, and, and he's one of the most famous ice climbers, mountaineers, um, river kayakers, paragliders in the world. And it's, it was interesting talking to him about risk. And, and he actually said something similar to you is that one thing that really holds him back from achieving more is not taking on enough risk. And so I'm just interested to hear that that sentiment expressed from two people that I see as just being very risk prone that take on risk that um, take on these big challenges and overcome them. And um, yeah, it's an interesting perspective because I, I find myself to be very risk averse, uh, but I want to become more like you and more like Will. Just go through what's the, what's the worst that can happen. And I think of that now too, you know, if, if, if all of, if I imagine, you know, if, if, everything just got turned upside down, which it kind of is now, but I mean, you know, like, like truly upside down and, you know, we lost our, our house and everything and then it was all gone. Yeah. No, I just, I just go start again. Wouldn't that? <laughs> you know, we, live in, we live in a pretty fantastic country. Like there are yeah. so many safety nets in this country. Um, 
that you know if, if you're if you're if you're willing to work still you know and, and you lost it all because you made too big of a bet somewhere there's all, all the safety nets in the world that will make sure that you you know you don't end up on the street and it's uh you can you can just try it all over again if it if it didn't work out i hope that's not what happens but. i'm with you <laughs> turning back to tundra here for a minute I, i'd be interested to know what is your vision for the future do you have kind of an overarching big goal that you are trying to achieve yeah, yeah, our our whole company does, and everyone knows what it is, and it's uh, it's to be the most trusted supplier of industrial process equipment in Western Canada. That's our that's our big goal, and so every decision that we make is with that lens, and if it doesn't fit that lens, then we just then it's an easy no for us. So we we that that that's our focus: being a great distributor of industrial process equipment. And how does the social entrepreneurship? fit into that vision because I know that you're somebody that's really involved in the community and you really always have been. And, and I admire companies like Tundra that uh, care about their employees. And, and obviously you have, because you guys have won uh, the best, you've been on the best managed companies list for, for years and years. And, but at the same time, you've also really cared about the communities that you serve. And so how does that social entrepreneurship piece fit in and where did that come from? Yes, social entrepreneurship. That's it's an odd term and one that I'm I'm not really in love with because it it makes it sound kind of like you're you're using the social piece to to build your business, which was never really the intent. And so I when I think back to my early days at Tundra, so I got involved in with Tundra in 2006, and uh, at the time Tundra did not have a philanthropic bone in its body. <laughs> I think I think our I think our annual charitable donation was like 200 bucks and that was to one of our guys kids hockey teams or something and that was it. And and that was okay, right? Like we were we were a young company focused on the business. And in the first couple of years that I was there, same thing, focused on the business, making sure we really understood what we were doing, making sure that we were actually profitable and that um you know that we were being successful. And but but previous to Tundra, I had done a ton of community stuff. And once I felt I had a reasonable handle on the business, that I thought it was time that we start doing things in the community. And you know those those were muscles that our that our employees and and our management team did not have, uh, just because we had never done it. And I, so I was kind of the only one that really had that experience. So I was pushing it, and you know, some days to a very reluctant audience. And, but I pushed and pushed and it took me a few years of just kind of ramming it down everyone's throats. Uh, and, but it was something interesting happening you know, about five years later, I, uh, well, well, every year I, I have a kind of a reflection day where I reflect on what happened and it, it takes me a whole day, but I reflect on what happened in the year, uh, both personally and, and in the business. And I write a long email to our company saying, Hey, you know, here's, it was a good year and here's all the great things that we did in all the areas of our company. And it just takes me a whole day to go through all my old emails and calendars and everything and reports and, and populate it all together into one place. And, um, and so I was, I was looking at it and I have a community section that I, that I, that I put in there and you know, I said, it was a great year for community. We have, we now have a philanthropy report that we publish every year and here it is. And here's all the new philanthropic things that we did this year. And I looked at all the new things and zero of them were my ideas. They were all driven 
uh, from the ground up by our people who thought that, hey, this would be a really cool thing, or this would be a really great thing, or I want to participate in this, or I want to help this group and do that and raise money for this. And that made me feel really good because th that meant that it was truly now built into the culture. And one of our four core values is give back. And so, I, so I, I, it's not, I wouldn't call it social entrepreneurship because we didn't do it to advance our company's agenda. We just did it because we thought it was the right thing to do. And our community has been good to us. So we wanted to support the community that's been good to us. Um, as it turns out, it actually is good for business. <laughs> that, 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 that certainly never was and isn't the reason that we do it. We continue to do it because it's the right thing to do. But it, but it actually is good for business. And, and I, when I talk to our, our, our customers, mention it to me that they love the fact that we do it. And when uh, when I interview people for, to to join our company as as, a, as one of our teammates, uh, we always ask, you know, what what makes you interested in working here? Why would you want to work here? And 100% of the time, like not 99% of the time, but 100% of the time, people say one of the reasons is because of our strong um, community support, which is which is really nice. So it's it's built, um, you know, it's built a nice brand around our people. And now it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the, the people that we bring on board, they say, well, I want to come here because I like the community stuff. So, you know, they're they're into it from day one. And, uh, and they're the ones that are driving all the, the new things and, and really continuing to drive the, the existing community things that we do. I think the research on this new generation that's coming into the workforce is already in the workforce. Um, millennials and Gen Ys are, are they're searching for a purpose, a, a belonging to something bigger than themselves. They're searching for a place to find meaning. And to turn to you, Iggy, I'd be interested to know how have you found meaning in your life, in your work? Um, yeah, you know, you try, you try to really think about what it is that your that your company does for the world. And you know, I, we, we provide equipment for for many industries, including oil and gas. And, and it, that, that equipment helps keep Western Canada running. And, and, and I think we're proud of that. We're, we're, we are, we're passionate about energy and bringing energy to people and, you know, building really safe and efficient facilities with our customers that, that we can be proud of. Um, and I, I think every company that, that has people that enjoy working there you know, sells a good product or provides a good service. And I think that we're no different, but I, I think what, what provides meaning for me and uh, is, is, you know, building a successful business, but also building successful uh, leaders and successful people, building them up and then building successful community as well. So uh, it's kind of, kind of my, you know, mission in life is to build successful businesses, people and communities. And, and I think, and I think we're able to, to do that. And so over, over the last few years, I've really been focusing more on really putting the pieces in place that allow all of our people to learn to be better business people. I think business is awesome. It's, I love doing it. I love being in it. It teaches you so many skills in every area of your life. It's not one little thing. It's a hundred big things that you need to know to, to be successful at it. And once you've figured it out in one industry, you can take that to any number of industries. You can, you can build wealth. You can, you can build up people, bring people out of poverty. It's business is the ultimate equalizer. I love it. 
And so I, so that's why I, I, I take a real big uh, pride and passion in that. And so that, that's really what gives me the, the, the meaning in, 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 in work with, with our people is building those successful leaders that, that will eventually take my job and all our other leaders' jobs and, and doing good in the community too. I love, I'm passionate about our community. Uh, it's, it's been great to us. And so I like being good to the community. And uh, so I, that, that gives a lot of meaning to it as it relates to the, to the business world. And those things really apply to family too, you know, building up successful people. I got two daughters and, you know, I hope that they'll be successful. And we talk about, they're only 10, but we talk about business and, and, you know, how to do it and what kind of a job they might want to have. And, you know, we, we, we talk about what's important in, in a job and, you know, I talk, look, you got to find something that you love and find something that you're good at. And maybe hopefully that that thing has a positive contribution to the world and all those things. So it's, I think it applies to everything. Um, the, you know, building great businesses, people, and communities. What kind of lessons about business have you taught your daughters? Because why I'm asking is that I want to be treated like a 10 year old. Um, so I'm going to learn on pace with your daughters. <laughs> uh, well, you know, one of them actually has been, is, is talking about what's important in a, in a job that, that, that I, that I just mentioned. And so we, we talk about that one a lot and, the, and we've together identified four things. And so a, couple, a few of them I mentioned here. The first one is you need to find something that, that you really in, enjoy, you know, and, and that, that will make your life a lot happier. And preferably find something that you're really good at too, um, because that will also make your life a lot easier and you have a much higher chance of success. Um, I've taught, taught them and together we've learned, you know, that, if you can find something that pays pretty good is, is, a, is a really nice thing. I mean, if, if you find something that you're, that you're extremely happy with and that you're good at, but it just pays nothing, again, it's just going to make your life more difficult and you're not going to be able to do some of those other things that you want to in the world. You're not going to be able to do those community things because you're just always scraping by. And if, and if you do have something that you think you can be great at that doesn't pay any money, well, try to try to find something else that can give you a steadier income so that you can do that and be even more magical at that thing. Uh, and then the last thing is try, try to find something that's going to have a positive impact on the world. And you know what? It, you know, it, it doesn't have to be saving starving children. You know, it, it can be building a good business where you can build good leaders, do good things in the community. That's I think that's leaving you know, a great legacy on the world too. It doesn't have to be this kind of grand mission of, of, of saving the world. It, it can be the grand mission of empowering a bunch of local people and helping them live their best possible life. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Those are great lessons. And I'm going to come back to those because those are, those are powerful. And I just want to finish up here with just a couple more questions. Sure. Um, I'm, like to know you've already mentioned one book today but like if you look back over the last six months to a year do you have a book that really stands out as the best book that you've read uh i thought you might ask this so i I do (laughs) (laughs) um there's there's two that that when people ask me what's what are your favorite books so in terms of business books i really enjoyed and still do enjoy good to great by jim Mm -hmm. collins it's a classic. The research is old, but I think it's so relevant still. And there are just some key lessons that I still point to almost on a daily basis in that book. Um, so, 
So everyone on our team has, has read it and it's it's a really powerful book that I, that I really, really enjoy. And I, it was written decades ago and still very relevant. Um, and then the other one is a little more personal. It's called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. And it's uh, it obviously it talks about happiness and how you, you know, happiness isn't a destination and that you'll you'll just you'll have more success if you start with being happy as opposed to doing all the things to get happy and it sounds like a very simple statement but he's got just a ton of scientific evidence that proves it whereas most other books around happiness are a little bit wishy-washy this one's this one's pretty science-based yeah we've spoken a little bit about meaning and and I've been on this quest to find meaning. And, and I think as an aside to that is, is happiness is associated with that. But an embarrassing lesson I've learned recently is, is how pursuit of happiness or pursuit of meaning um, it, but in just by pursuing it, you actually get further away from achieving that objective. And so I've really been trying to, to find meaning in, in small moments or happiness in small moments and, and obviously staying present and mindfulness, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, that, that resonates with me as well. Yeah. Perfect. And something I just want to finish off with was I'd be interested to know from you, Iggy is, is what is, what is something that's holding you back from achieving even higher levels of success right now? Because in our stride meetings, we always, um, we reflect on, on number one is we reflect on ourselves and say, this is something I think is holding me back from getting to that next level. And then we ask for some feedback from the group to see what is, what are my blind spots? What am I missing that's holding me back from, from further success? And so I'd like to turn that question to you and find out, you know, you're obviously you've achieved these really incredible things and in, in building this renowned, excellent, uh, loved business. And so for you, maybe it's not about achieving that next thing, but maybe it's a better life balance. So, and so what is that thing? What's holding you back from achieving success, however you define that? Well, I, I think I think you just nailed it right at the end there is the most important thing to, to you know to figure out what's holding you back is to first define what your success is. And your definition of success for everybody, I think, is different at the different stages in your life. It, uh, it, it, it changes from when you're, you know, you're just, just a, you know, a young, young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed go-getter that's starting whatever they're starting. And it changes when you get married and have kids, it changes as you get older, it changes as, um, as your financial situation changes for better or for worse. And so, so, and, and sometimes it just changes based on major life events. Maybe it changes based on uh, on health scare or something that happens in your family or just or just some pure realizations that you've had about what's important to you. So um, I think the first thing holding anyone back is to really figure out what that definition of success is. And I'm always trying to figure out what mine is. And, you know, sometimes it changes day to day. And, you know, some days I, I want to. I, you know, there's certain things in our business that that I want to see better, and 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 other days it's 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 really focusing more on my kids or focusing on time with me and my wife or uh, or my health uh, or 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 the hobbies that are that are you know maybe lacking because I've been working a little bit too hard. So I think the 
I think for me, the, the, the biggest challenge has been defining that success. And, uh, but generally in business, whenever, whenever I found what's, what's holding me back from that next level, it's usually been letting go of something. Um, so there's, you know, you only have so many hours in the day, you have the exact same amount of hours as everyone else in the world. That's the ultimate equalizer time. Um, but really if, if I find that I'm just, that I'm working too much and, and I'm not getting ahead on certain things, it's just because I've got too much on my plate and I either have to stop doing something and just say, I'm just never going to get to this thing, or I'm going to get to it in a year or two or get somebody else to do it and, uh, and get it off my plate so that I can focus on those more important things. So almost always when I've, when I've had a block, it's because I haven't fully released some tasks to somebody or I, or I've delegated it, but not really, you know, you're still kind of checking in and, and really got your finger on the pulse where I should really just completely let go of it and just trust the person to get it done. So that's, that's been, that's always been what's, what's held me back. And so I, I try to always get better at fully delegating things, letting people run with it. And, you know, I don't need a daily check-in, maybe it's monthly and just to see how things are going. Well, Iggy, thank you for deciding to say yes to do this podcast and for your time today. I, I just want to thank you so much for taking your time to chat with us. I know that you're somebody that has really achieved, like I said, remarkable things across a lot of different businesses and, and you've built some built a really incredible culture with Tundra. So um, thank you for taking this time. And, and for the listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Iggy, you can find him personally on LinkedIn at Iggy Domagalski, D-O-M-A-G-A-L-S-K-I. Or you can check out Tundra's website at tundrasolutions.ca. Iggy, it has been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jared. Pleasure is all mine. I really, really enjoyed the time. And thank you for putting out such great content. Much appreciated. Thanks, Iggy. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator. And find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.